0: Come in. Hey, man, I'm sorry I'm late to train the train. Shut up! You're here! And good thing, because we've got lots of work.
1: It's Employee of
0: the Month with Katie Lazarus, the talk show featuring unforgettable guests with incredible jobs. And now, here's my boss and your host,
1: Katie Lazarus. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to Employee of the Month. I'm your host, Katie Lazarus, and I am delighted to be bringing you this interview, which I recorded live in Oscar Eustace's office. He's the artistic director of the Public Theater, which um, gained worldwide recognition uh, with Hamilton. Now, Sweat, it just won its Pulitzer, but it's been famous for a very long time. Also, Fun Home, um, Normal Heart, there are so many more I can keep going of the brilliant, brilliant plays that come out of it, as well as Shakespeare in the Park and Joe's Pub at the Public Theater, which is where Employee of the Month is. And it's a one-of-a-kind experience to be there as a performer. And I'm always aware of the privilege to be there because um, you run into someone super famous in the hallway at some point. In fact, before I did this interview, I saw someone talking to themselves. I will not say their name, Graydon Carter. And i um, It's just a thrill to be there. I want to just point out three things about our interview. Oscar Eustace, who grew up in Minnesota, has been an artistic director in some capacity since he was 18 years old, which is a feat in and of itself to have been doing one's craft for so long. And he's worked in a range of theaters from experimental theater to theater in Switzerland to um, really big ones like Trinity rep and at Mark Taper Forum in LA. He was the associate artistic director and of course joined the public theater in 2005. Um, The second thing that I want to point out that I was so impressed with is his leadership capacity that he is passing the baton on um, when it's time. Luckily, it's not time for him to go. But the idea of even recognizing that there will be a time is so rare in leaders. So I was really thrilled about that. And he makes some really special announcements, which means that he's either going to join the Trump administration, which I mentioned because he's good at leaking, or he really values Employee of the Month and wanted to make sure that you got the inside scoop first. So enjoy. Here's my interview with the one and only Oscar Eustace. Do you consider yourself, first of all, do you consider the public theater starting with the first Shakespeare introduction or like with Paps first theater or?
0: Absolutely. We trace our lineage to the first time that Joe Papp started to do what was then the New York Shakespeare workshop in the basement of a church on the Lower East Side because right from the beginning Joe was animated by the ideas that over the coming decades he would expand and elaborate on but the core was there right from the start.
1: And so then do you consider yourself older than the
0: public theater? Because you're... No, I'm young in the public theater, <laughs> I, At least last I checked, I was born in 1958, and the public was born in 1954. So <laughs> I'm still a little bit younger than the other. but I'm wondering catching if, up fast. I was
1: just wondering if that had anything to do with whether you trace it to there versus, you know, or later when it... <laughs> I, I, I don't <laughs> think so. But,
0: you know, I've, I've steeped myself in the history of this place so much <laughs> that, um, you know, literally when the job came open... Um, I was not on the first list of candidates. Is that
1: right? Because no. the way that it it plays out in the media is that there was no other candidate.
0: Yeah, that didn't so. Um, I had to, you know, sort of force my way into the conversation and basically what I'd, – I'd never gone after a job in my life. I'd been lucky enough to always sort of be offered jobs. But I wanted this job and I basically – my job was to come and talk to the board and by the time I was done, my first conversation with them, I wanted to make it impossible for them to hire anybody else.
1: And so how does one do that?
0: Well, in my case, fortunately, it was because I could tell the truth, which is that – A, my entire sense of what a theater should be was shaped when as a teenager, a 16-year-old, I walked into this theater and I, like one of those big baby ducks in Conrad Lorenz's experiments, I got imprinted by the public. So my entire career after I left New York was really 25 years of going around the country to San Francisco, to Los Angeles, to Providence, yeah, trying to recreate the public theater. And that's what I did everywhere I was. And I also studied and thought. and t- So the, the ideology and the history of this place really felt like they were in my bones. They had made me who I was. And I knew that was not true of anybody else who was a candidate.
1: How did studying experimental theater at NYU prepare you um, to be a spear carrier?
0: Uh, well, I failed to become a spear carrier. You know? So it didn't? Uh, yeah, exactly. I did the, my last audition was for Joe. You've probably heard the story. But um, I came in and I got the audition. It was 1976. He was directing Henry V in the Park. And Lee Brewer, who was Mabo Mind's artistic director, had gotten me the audition because Joe had asked Lee to direct the fight scenes, which was the kind of crazy thing that uh, Joe did. And I came in and Joe said, uh, what Shakespeare are you going to do for me? And I said, I don't know any Shakespeare. And he said, well what are you going to do? And I said, I'm working on a performance piece <laughs> based on a poem by Kenneth coach called sleeping with women. And he said, well, do that. And at the end of a very long audition, he said, what was that? And I told him again, and he said, I suggest you keep doing that instead. <laughs> and I stopped acting. Literally, I walked out of the room and I never auditioned again. I was done as an actor.
1: Do you miss it or do I miss acting? the idea no, of it?
0: no. I was never suited for it. Um, you know, the thing I really noticed is my fellow actors enjoyed the actual act of acting so much more than I did. You know, whenever I was acting, I was always self-conscious. I was always thinking, oh, I could have done that better. Why did I do it that way? What about the I was thinking like a director, yeah. even though I was acting. So it just wasn't as pleasurable for me as directing.
1: That's also as, as the only segue to my next question, um, which is you for someone who – has such, I would say, radical to moderately liberal politics and um, has, throughout your career, done experimental theater and done certainly um, innovative works at different capacities, meaning different budgets and different Mm -hmm. things all along the way, which um, is remarkable, you have not rebelled at all. Like, you come from parents who were either lefty, you know, Democrats or communists and are you do you think like in your 80s you're going to become like a republican or something like i feel like the only thing rebellious of is maybe sending your kids to private school
0: oh no 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 I, the, here's the rebellious thing i did
1: and it's all, a liberal private school yeah, right
0: all four of my parents uh both my biological parents and both my step parents were uh, professors at the university of minnesota they were all they all had doctorates um, I dropped out of college after one year yeah. and never went back. I don't have any degrees except honorary ones. And that was an, – and I really made my way sort of in the counterculture until, you know, finally I was able to get real jobs and make a living. And that was really dramatic rebellion against what my parents had set up as an example.
1: It's interesting because it's, it's something you have in common with um, Dave Chappelle and Louis C.K., I was going to say, in that, like, Louis's parents um, went to Harvard, and I think they—I think one of them taught there, and then uh, Chappelle's, um, I don't know if it was his, I think it was his father, I may be wrong, it may have been his mom, who created the first African-American studies department at um it's not Oberlin. It's like one of the schools. I remember when I was, a, I went Grinnell to Grinnell yeah. But I mean, but that they came from these, you know, not just yeah. particularly educated, but educated in a particular rarefied sort of way of valuing um, education um, for all the right and wrong reasons. And um, it's just interesting because neither went to school and both are obviously brilliant. And, and you are as well. And coming from stand-up, there's so many people who are smarter than a lot of the people who did go to college um, because they, you know, Self-educated, yeah, yeah. Um, they they ch- chose their path, but they also had sort of a Napoleon complex about it, and
0: um, right, right,
1: went out and actually read.
0: Well, this day is unlike any other day because I have never been compared to Dave Chappelle, and, Louis <laughs> and I'm deeply honored. <laughs>
1: okay, good. I think it's an interesting thing because yeah,
0: no. no, there's <laughs> the no The theater world
1: that... is quite elitist in many ways, and I th- and st- coming from stand-up, it's not. And right, right. It really is a melting pot there. (laughs) Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, it's a you know I feel really lucky because um, uh, although I'm sort of an autodidact, I learned an enormous amount from my parents. The fact that I didn't go to college, that I didn't go to an elite college, that I didn't go to an MFA program, it means that I actually really sort of came from the grassroots theater. I made theater and worked my way up the ladder, and that feels like a very good position to be in when you're figuring out how to run a theater.
1: Now, even at nineteen, you were well regarded, and I'm thinking about when you and Stephen Muller—is that the correct name? Stefan, yeah, Muller. Um, Stefan, excuse me. Um, you know, w- when you were abroad and doing this, and you know, you were already touted as a great leader. And I just talked to an employee who calls you a great leader, and. Um, even in Providence, they named a street after you? Or <laughs> Empire Empire Street Oscar Eustace Boulevard? There I mean, that's go. talk about street cred. That's way better. <laughs> um, you, I
0: say, you clearly have wasted way too much of your life <laughs> researching me. I mean, that's really...
1: But I, I mean, the question there is like, to what extent? And I think that it is, I'm asking this in part because the artistic community is yearning for leaders. And in part because our, um, as a people... And when I say people, I really mean peoples um, are yearning for leadership. Mm. Like to what extent do you feel that like leaders are born versus made –
0: Oh, I wasn't born. I mean, I was born, obviously, but I wasn't born this a is leader. This going to
1: be an extremely interesting interview.
0: Exactly. <laughs> First, we
1: need to talk to your parents, <laughs> The um, then your wife. <laughs> I believe
0: two things um, uh, for me that mattered. One is that I feel like I had the blessings of parents who both uh, had incredibly powerful value systems that I both adopted and rebelled against. Um, you know, My mother and stepfather were members of the Communist Party until they died. I never joined the party, never wanted to join the party, but I was of course heavily influenced by them. My father stepmother were liberal Democrats. They influenced me. So I received the benefit of parents who really believed in things and who often suffered and, and paid for those beliefs. But without forcing me to believe the same things, but the example of believing, it led me, I think, to um, help define what I cared about and earlier than a lot of other people. And that's the key to leadership is actually knowing what you value, knowing what's important. And, the and other th-
1: being able to articulate it.
0: That, that was useful. That I got from my parents, um, verbal facility. But here's another thing that I really think that is – I am not that good a director, and that's part of why I'm a terrific leader, because I realized fairly early on in my career that my job was not simply to pursue my own star and fan my own brilliance till I dazzled the world. My job was actually to provide environments for other people to fulfill their visions. And that, it really is service that I feel like is what I hope, marks me as an artistic director and as a dramaturg. I'm helping other people who I believe in achieve their visions, achieve their, their full potential. I block downfield for artists. And um, it's helpful when you do that to know what you believe in.
1: Right. How do you logistically, I mean, just, you have, I think, what, over 170 employees, I'm going to guess. That's right. Um, You have locations, in addition to the public theater, in addition to doing Shakespeare in the Park, um, you know, you guys have branched out and are doing things from Seattle to Houston to um, Broadway to, I think, like, Hong Kong or something like that. Yeah, we just got back from Hong Kong. I mean, so, like, (laughs) I just, like, logistically, my head was going to, like, how much time goes to... Um, donors versus, like, I don't want to say new talent, but, you know, finding new works yeah. to directing your directing Caesar again. Well, here
0: here's the most important part is that it's not me that's doing all those things by myself. There's 170 people who yeah. are devoting their lives, plus, a volunteer board who are working very, very – there are a whole lot of people to carry out this mission. And I'm lucky enough, over the last decade, we've assembled a really spectacular staff. And the thing I like to say is there's not anything – Was someone
1: interrupting you? Now there is. Yes,
0: <laughs> There wasn't anything that uh, I do that somebody else on staff can't also do. There's There's nothing that I'm the only one who can do, except some titular things – where it needs to be the head of the organization. But that's only because of my title. That's not because of me. And that is what makes all of this possible, is that we've got a we got a team of people here who, they're the most idealistic staff I have ever encountered. They yeah. believe in what we're doing.
1: Do you also know about your security guard,
0: Morris? Which aspect? I know <laughs> several things <laughs> about Morris. Can I tell Morris. you that? Like, he dances like nobody's business.
1: It made me the happiest human being in the world to be like, I, I'm not good in any... Um, if I'm not working, I'm like not particularly useful, or if I don't like, I'm talking one on one with someone. Mm-hmm. And so I was like standing at, I don't know, uh, it was John Legazamo's opening thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then like I just saw Morris dancing, and yeah. I was like, he loves his job so much, and he can like just be himself. Like that man is just completely comfortable in his own
0: skin. And you know how long he's been here, right? No. 20 years.
1: Okay, first of all, he looks like he's 18. I know. But, like,
0: <laughs> um, but here's actually my favorite story. I'm going to violate something I said to you. But just I, when um, my son was maybe seven or eight years old, I had bought him a plastic lightsaber. And I had one, too. And I brought him here, it was like the second year I was here, to the stage of the Newman so that we could have a sword battle because it was a great place for it. And so we were having a lightsaber battle and then suddenly i heard this voice and this thump and i turned around and there was morris decked out in full Hello. star wars costume with his own lightsaber and he and jack started to fight and it was just like what kind of world have i come like, to
1: no one and you know in fact in addition to the podcast interview i'm going to post a video of him dancing so that people have like just yeah. a taste of How comfortable in his own skin this person is, and I, I love it. It, it made me really happy. And like, I do a show at Joe's Pub every month, and, um, you know, everyone who works there for the most part is really like excited to be there. One of the waitresses lives on my block, Mm -hmm. and like, you know what I mean? There's just something. There's something very, um, unique. I will say Mm -hmm. about that. You should enjoy. Happy. That makes me happy. (laughs) Um, I also wanted to ask, like. The works here are extraordinarily diverse, but you're a white male. And so, how do you how do you go about carrying on this mission of wanting to give people the tools to perhaps either build a new house when when you yourself may be considered a master? Sort of how do you how do you balance that?
0: Well, you do the best you can. Um, it is too bad that I'm a white male in the sense that that's not he, could, he who, couldn't even be gay. I know, I know, it's a problem. <laughs> um, but um, it, you know, the fact that I was raised in a Marxist environment was very helpful because identity politics politics were never the key to my politics, class politics were. Yes. And so now, I, what I feel like I've got to work on is the intersection between class and ethnicity. So, for example, one of the things I'm proud that the board has just agreed with is we're actually creating a succession planning process where I'm going to train not one or two, but at least a dozen people over years, and I've got a budget item devoted to it, who could potentially be my successors. And all of those people will be women and people of color because that's part of the job right now is for people in my generation to be training the leadership of the future and bringing them up. And you do that the same way you develop artists or directors or writers. You invest in them, you care about them, you share with them everything you know, you're prepared to learn from them and prepared for them to disagree with you. And, um you know you do your best and yeah that's what i mean I try there there's
1: so many factors that go into it like i host a show and like one of the things that i look at for in what i consider inclusivity is the fact that like i've had a 95 year old on wow. and a 22 year old wow. on and like to me having people who are older and working in an industry that is so bent on who is the new young thing, even, you know, that is as much relevant to me, I would say, as other parts that I really care about, which is, you know, but there are just so many different factors, like when you, if you really start to get into it. um, And so because the public does care about getting into it and getting into those weeds, even just logistically, like, how many plays you can commission versus how many you can put on yeah, yeah. like how do you deal with telling someone
0: no um well you just you just have to do it and you just have to be honest about it the the thing the thing i want to say is that the actual for me always the key decision is are you going to start working on something cuz once we start working on something most of the time we'll carry it through to production and sometimes it's Five, six, seven years before we're done. It's pretty rare that once we've made the decision to start working on something, that we will just say no and abandon it. And so that decision to work, you got to be smart about it. And you got to be smart about it in terms of the diversity of people you say yes to in projects. you got to be smart about it in your recognition of the potential of that project because that's going to take years of your life.
1: right. And when you say potential, is it in terms of Broadway? Like, what are no, what are no, the no, different?
0: Potential no. just make an exciting work of art. Okay, some of which will go to Broadway. The vast majority of which won't. I mean, you, you know, this. My favorite program is Public Works here, which is the least commercial thing we do, and I'm yeah. prouder of that than anything else we've invented. It's
1: a lot of faces for radio. Yeah,
0: right. It's you know the but I also want to go back <laughs> to something you said about okay. identity politics, um, which is. Uh, 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 Partly because I was raised in a Marxist tradition, it means that I've never been particularly hung up on personal purity or ideological – my ideological conscience. Because Marxists care about the effect you have on the world. So I don't waste a lot of time feeling bad because I'm white or feeling bad because I have privilege. That doesn't – that's not the tradition I was raised in.
1: Well, that's interesting. So it doesn't – okay. So I I feel like – wait. Because my grandfather worked with Martin Luther King Jr. Mm. Um, and he gave all of his money. He made money and gave it all away. Wow. And um, I do, I do feel that I was um frozen from a sense of responsibility. So like I would, I worked in foster care and loved it, and I loved doing social activism, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but I also like didn't allow myself to do something creative until much later. Oh wow. wow! And so I do. I do think that that it wasn't effective. It wasn't helpful. That um, and it's not guilt because guilt is not an emotion. Yeah. But but there was there is and was a sense of that, and it is something that like there are no female talk show hosts who have in depth conversations with guests that are like meant to be funny on stage. I'm.
0: How interesting.
1: You know. So for me to exist at all is. A, a sign of what they call diversity, I hate, hate that word but but um but at the same time, like I am aware that that role will probably go to a woman in, of color right, and right, right. i don't in my head, i'm like there's enough room for everyone, so it yep. doesn't seem like there shouldn't be you know what I mean yep, like. Yep. Um, we we have enough humor. We have enough. We have Spicer. We have Trump. We have Kellyanne. <laughs> We're done with the humor.
0: I could I um, could stand with less of that kind of humor. Let <laughs> me tell you,
1: Mike Flynn. Yeah. Um. So. So I definitely like that. Is I'm, I'm impressed that you didn't get hung up on that because I don't actually see it as
0: useful. No, exactly, it isn't useful. And you talked earlier about rebellion. That's another way I rebelled against my folks. Nobody in the history of my family has been an artist. That's just not part of the. the and you know the the h- huge key moment in my life when I was I was living in Europe as a young man. And um, Patti Smith's album, Easter, came out with a song called Babalog on it, and um, she says at one point, in heart, I am a Muslim. In heart, I am a Muslim. In heart, I am an American artist, and I have no guilt. <laughs> and when I heard that, I still remember where I was. I started crying, and that was when I decided I have to go back home. I cannot be an expatriate. I am an American artist, and I have no guilt. And... You know, it's everything that's beautiful about Patty Smith, right? Just what an yeah. artist. But that, you know, it just, guilt is not a, it's not an emotion, you're right, but it's also not a productive stance to take towards anything. It's an either. It's just freezing. Yeah. And what I have to do, what I have to do is be aware of the immense privilege that is given to me by being a straight, white, articulate male who came from professional parents in this culture at this time. That, and loved. And loved. This is going to enormous advantages. That's... Just means that I have to do more good for the world. That I've got my more responsibility to do good. It doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with me.
1: Let's talk about another rare privilege. You've um, been gainfully employed for most of your That's career. Exactly in right? The
0: theater. It's <laughs> exactly. It's astonishing. I've raised mm-hmm. a family in the nonprofit theater. It's crazy. Yes. Oh.
1: How do you square that with um you know artists making less and less and um endowments uh being uh diluted or i I, get, I feel like the fear of of them being um you know the national endowment of the arts like yeah. you know
0: I, well listen I, you and, know I don't square it I've been incredibly lucky, but what again, what my responsibility is is to try to turn around the tide of paying artists less and less. And you know, in our last negotiations with the Actors Union, there's absolutely no question that managers from the other theaters considered me a traitor, because my opening gambit was, look, this is what equity wants, let's just say yes to all of it. Let's make this the easiest, and of course there's pushback, and we didn't get to say yes to all of it. But what we did at the end, yeah. compromise by, we made a contract that only the public theater pays. And in that contract, by five years from now, we'll be paying a minimum of $1,500 a week to everybody who works here. Now, that's not a lot of money, but it's way different from what it's been. And we've got to reverse the trend to not pay artists a living wage. It's just appalling.
1: It's also, um, it's an odd thing. Like, I host a show that I couldn't afford to go to. And it is a a weird chasm. But as an executive director, it's an even harder... Um, do you, don't you like my pronunciation of the word chasm? It's great. great. It's like, the, I love that last scene in The Sopranos where the sun.
0: You no, know,
1: I, I didn't see it, but. <laughs> okay. Yates, Sorry, yeats. I was watching The Wire instead. Okay. Which is great. And the
0: best Which thing is great. ever made.
1: And, um, I can hear about your work with David Simon, who's also been an alumni <laughs> of Employee of the Month. Oh, God. Um. Um, but I was going to ask, like, how what do you do? Because, you know, you have a twenty one dollar burger because your um, patrons can and should pay for it so that right. that can then fund um, an artist doing, you know, a public work But the artists themselves can't then go there and enjoy yeah. that. Like, how do how do you how do you balance the fact that you are simultaneously feeding different mouths.
0: Yeah, well, Marx said um, men, you'll forgive the gender specificity, men make history, but they do not make it in conditions of their own choosing. I didn't choose that I was going to be sort of You know, in the heart of my career during a time of capitalist hegemony, when the market is more triumphalist than at any time in world history. But
1: we're here now.
0: But we're here. So what do you do about it? And what you do about it is you work within it. You know you're never going to stay clean. Again, it's not about me personally staying clean. It's about what can I do that will have the biggest impact? And, of course… In a way, this entire theater is a machine for redistributing the wealth. What we do is we take donations, we take ticket prices, and we turn around, and we give away free tickets at Shakespeare in the Park. We give away free tickets to the mobile. We will soon be giving away free tickets downtown, which is something I'm not supposed to announce, but there we go. We, we are – and, and we're Downtown sort of, as in here? This yeah, is yeah, down, yeah, yeah. We're going to be doing some more free tickets down here. Pretend nobody heard that because I'm not supposed to say it. Um, the, uh, but so you, you work with what you can work with. You can w- try to rest the world yeah. to be a little more in sync with the values that you believe in, a little more democratic, a little more egalitarian. And, you know, even more because we're in the culture industry, it's not just what we do, it's the example that we set. It's holding up a flag and saying, this is what matters, please, not what they're telling you what matters. And when we can succeed at that, it's thrilling.
1: How much did Hamilton and Fun Home and, and you know, having so much success financially, which is a boon, um, what were the, what are the perks? Tell me about the perks. I want to
0: live vicariously. Uh, well, the, the the biggest perk. Uh, well, it, actually, you told me to be honest, so I'll tell you. Uh, I'm one of six people who are really the core group around making Hamilton. My commercial partner, Jeffrey Sellers, and the uh, choreographer, music director, uh, Lynn, and Tommy Kail,
1: I've never heard of any of these people. Yeah, no, All I'm just right. kidding.
0: <laughs> so, sitting around in our meetings now, which is a little different than three years ago, I'm surrounded by guys who are multimillionaires. I'm not. And, you know, it makes you feel a little weird. because I haven't made a penny from Hamilton. And then I realized a couple of months ago, went, oh, wait a minute. Let me reframe this. They've all got money. Great. So they can be rich. I now run a theater that's got money. Yeah. That is so much better. I can do so much more with that than yeah. I could do if I just had money in my banking account. We're going to be able to make investments in artists that are going to – we're going to be able to make tickets free. Yeah. We're going to be able to actually pay people. But There's so many things that we're going to be able to do and that I'm going to be able to do because Hamilton is making the public wealthy, yeah. not me wealthy. It's a be, it's a better deal. I have a better deal than they do.
1: But it is it is an interesting part of it as well like um, I had Robert Smigel on my show and he does Triumph the Salt Comic Dog and like his friends are like Conan and Adam Sandler and mm-hmm. like it is a d- and even Colbert like it is a st- strange thing when like your friends be- and he, he is wealthy to any other human being right. on the planet right. but in his world he's not and yeah. you know Judd Apatow and all of those um, so yeah so you'll have to like go in with like last year's J Crew pants instead of <laughs> <laughs>
0: And really, is that, I mean, is it really a loss that I'm not more dressed up? Let's face it. I don't think anybody in the world thinks that's terrible.
1: Um, I want to ask, like, with Julius Caesar, you're doing it again. Mm. You did it um, at the Trinity. Uh, for you, what are you hoping to do differently this time?
0: Well, this is a, I, I last did Julius Caesar almost 30 years ago, and this is a completely different time, and it's going to feel different. Um, I decided to do it on November 10th because it just seemed like this was a good moment for us to tell a story about a group of people who were very worried about the survival of their democracy in the face of a charismatic, demagogic populist who was threatening to become a dictator and what they decided to do about it. And, of course, on a certain level, it's a nightmare what happens. Um, You look at, actually, Act 3, Scene 1 of Julius Caesar takes place in the Ides of March, 44 B.C. Yes. And Caesar is assassinated by a group of people who are trying to preserve their democracy. In real life, that day, democracy ended on the planet Earth Mm. until a bunch of guys started throwing tea into the Boston Harbor almost 2,000 years later. Their action to preserve democracy created the opposite created uh, just the absence of it for two millennia. So that feels to me like a beautiful thing for us to be looking at right now. We know we're faced with the incredible fragility of our democracy. Suddenly, you know, this country that looks so solid looks a lot less solid.
1: Well, that's also why I struggle with the sort of the – I mean there are a lot of people on the left and on the right – who want to dismantle it entirely and start anew a and whether it's Steve Bant, you know, Steve, who knows what's going on in, in his head, but, you know, um, from his perspective to someone who's saying, no, the democratic party is like obviously self-imploding. Let's start again. And um, what you were talking about before, which is incremental change and where can I like realistically um, make change here. And it is scary because there's so much, Fracture splintering at the same time, even in the.
0: Yeah, there is, but he, here is listen, this is the left People have problem. potential to come together. Yeah. yeah. And when, you know, for somebody of my generation in politics, the model that's always in front of you is the end of the Weimar Republic. Because what is just shocking looking backwards is that both the Communist Party and the Social Democratic Party, which was the liberal party, if you will, both thought the other one was a bigger enemy than the Nazis.
1: Yes, and got too and got too caught up in each that.
0: Other that's and right. Then son of a bitch, Hitler's chancellor, and I guess they were wrong about who was the biggest enemy. We, we the the problem with de, our, our Democrats, um, both with a small D and a large D, is that we are inherently that's part of our identity, that we are a pluralistic party, that we are a big tent that wants to take in a lot of different people with a lot of different points of view. Right. The Republicans all look alike. They're all rich white people. I'm exaggerating, but there's fault lines in the Republican Party, too, but nowhere near as much. Right. Whereas
1: the Democratic Party, we have rich black people, too. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The the Republican Party is able to be much more disciplined than historically the Democrats have. And now is the time where we have to stop attacking each other, stop, you know, trying to claim the moral high ground from each other and actually say, no, there are basic progressive realities to democracy that we have to fight to preserve. It is not guaranteed it's going to last and, you know, and it, the the trots on the left who want to blow it up and start over again are fantasizing. Right. When if we blow it up and start over again, we're not going to win. If it blows up, they're going to
1: win. Right. I actually think it's a sign of entitlement,
0: the ones who do. I, I think that's right. I agree with that.
1: Um, in terms of art, though, it's, I'm glad you brought up Weimar because, you know, I'm thinking about Metropolis and all of the, you know, amazing f- films that went on in that period. And... Um, <laughs> I guess what I was going to ask is like, how much do you feel like? I mean, I can see, I can tangibly see the impact of the of Hamilton um, because yeah. I can see it as like this one oddly unifying force between like stodgy um, conservative or liberal, uh, you know, politicians all the way down to some kid who had no idea that their voice could be heard right. um, and that they are a part of this um, this history in actually a really beautiful mm-hmm. way exactly and, and right. as a, a, a point of agency. Um, so I can see it certainly there. And then Fun Home, I can see it. However, the tickets to these things are so extraordinarily expensive Crazy, right? that um, how do you reconcile um, or how do you... I see how you're doing it with getting the ticket prices down there. Um, but I guess how do you, how do you personally find a way to ensure that you're not just preaching to the converted and then I'll...
0: Well, there's two things I want to say. First of all, you know, sometimes that phrase is preaching to the choir.
1: Yeah. And...
0: The preaching is always to the choir. There's nothing wrong with preaching. The well, that's choir. that's a, what preaching is for. Such a smart
1: for. point. But
0: it's true, right? Although occasionally
1: I've, there's someone preaching on a random street yeah, corner. Yeah, yeah. And but I've clear. had to think
0: about this a lot. The function of a whole lot of preaching is to affirm the values of a community of people and to affirm their sense of commonality. That's a beautiful thing to do. And, it, you know, churches, people don't walk into churches and get converted. That's not how it happens. Yeah. Now, That doesn't mean we can just speak to ourselves or just speak to the choir. Let me give you an example about Hamilton. You remember when Brandon read that thing from the stage when Pence was in the audience and, you know, we got a demand from Trump that the producers, that means me, apologized to him. I loved that. We didn't. But there was an online petition to boycott Hamilton, you know, because of that. We treated Vice President Pence— um, Disrespect, and
1: also it was the audience. I mean, the the idea that someone who survived cancer and HIV, and most of these actors, never got a chance before to be on Broadway, and who knows whether they'll get a chance again because they're people of color. I mean, I, I yeah, sorry, but <laughs> they are not. They are not the elite. Here's the thing they're I'm looking at. Signature.
0: I'm looking at those couple hundred thousand people who signed the petition boycotting Hamilton. Well, the reality is they were never going to see Hamilton. Yeah, they couldn't afford a ticket. It's not going to come to a town near them, and if it did, they don't have any connections to get in. And then at that point, you realize, oh, they're not boycotting Hamilton. We boycotted them a long time ago, Mm -hmm. and that is just wrong. Look at a map of the country, the blue and red map. I could tell you the blue is marking all of the major nonprofit cultural institutions in the country, and it would be accurate. We have abandoned red America. We have said the culture isn't for you. We've turned our backs on this. Now, I'm not saying that they're making it easy for us. But one of the things I really believe is our job as cultural workers to go, no, we really do. Culture belongs to everyone. So we are going to do a tour next year through every county in Pennsylvania, awesome. Michigan, Ohio, and Wisconsin that voted for Trump in 16 and Obama in 12. Every county that flipped, we're going to be performing in next year.
1: In and Hamilton there? No, actually.
0: Um, we're going to take sweat there. Yes. I'm okay. i supposed to announce that. But, um, uh, so we are actually going to go there and we're going to start making those counties part of our mobile tour. So that, you know, of course we want to change their minds. But the first thing we have to do is say, yeah, we're for you too we 're not just for the people who agree with us, and I think that 's a hugely important thing for cultural workers to try and adopt right now it's say
1: really beautiful nice. and i 'm um, I'm really impressed, and I also think you could join uh, trump 's White House. Staff, because you keep leaking
0: things.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You're ready to go. Um, I know know that you have to race to something else, but I wanted to thank you for taking time out because um, I've been a huge admirer of your work for a long time. So thank thank you you. for being here.
0: This has been immensely pleasurable.
1: Thanks. Thank you, Oscar. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Katie Lazarus. Thank you to Rob Schulte. Um, Please check out Employee of the Month show. You can find out ways to get involved, sponsor, get on the mailing list for live shows. And we have all new episodes coming out each week um, and two more live tapings. So please check out employeeofthemonthshow.com and you can follow me at Katie Lazarus or just follow me around. It won't be awkward. Talk to
0: you next week.